0: Welcome back to Exploring Jewish Philosophy. We have a few things on the agenda today. First of all, I'd like to add an additional element to the Maharal's perspective that we spoke about last week. There's a final point that he makes that I think is worth mentioning. Second of all, we'll get into the Ramchal's general perspective on why we do mitzvot, why we follow the commandments, what we hope that they're doing. And lastly we may find that both the Maharal and the Ramchal's perspectives are a little bit abstract, perhaps hard to understand and even harder to conceptualize and bring into our daily lives to enhance our actual performance and observance of the commandments. So I'm going to bring a metaphor that I think is very timely and relevant and much more easily conceptualized ...that I like to give over a lot, I find that at least for myself... ...it helps me frame some very difficult ideas in a very practical sense. So, first of all, let's talk about the Maharal. There are always two questions that could be asked in religious practice... ...whether it's performance of mitzvot or Torah study... ...really anything that we see as objectively good or bad within the framework of religion... And that is, what is it doing to me, and what is it doing to the world? Or, you know, is it doing anything to me, or is it doing anything to the world? And I guess, what's the primary objective? We spoke a lot of the Maharal's perspective on what it does to us. Meaning, the mitzvot are designed to create association between us and God, create similarity that facilitates the soul's ability to exist harmoniously with its source, with God from whom it was taken. And the goal is to refine our soul in this world to create this sense of association with God for the next world. And that is the what it does to us question. But the truth of the matter is, that's not the only thing it does and may not even be the primary thing that it does once you take into account why we were put here, what we were created for if our soul used to be part of God, it's at Selem elokim, And as the Maharal says that, you know, anyone who understands anything will know that just as it was taken from God, it is going back there. Seemingly, there would have been no harm done in just leaving it there. Why do I have to take the risk of putting it in the world, having it be misshapen, and then needing mitzvot to correct it? in order to, yet again, exist harmoniously with God. Well, perhaps we're not here for us. Perhaps we're not here for our own refinement. We're not here to accomplish some sort of personal goals. Perhaps we're here for something else, and the mitzvot are aimed to facilitate that goal. And if that would be the case, then how exactly do we tie that back in to the Maharal's perspective on why we do mitzvot. Well, perhaps I need to be more particular in my language. Everything we've spoken up until now has been what the mitzvot do. What we benefit from doing mitzvot. I'm not sure it's fair to say, though, that that's why we do mitzvot, according to the Maharal, at least. According to the Maharal, the mitzvot are meant to accomplish a world where god is present within it the idea is that our behavior our godly behavior so to speak our godly actions creates a world where god exists within the world where he exists within our interactions with ourselves with our peers the people around us the world around us the more we behave like god so to speak in this world the more we bring him into the world in a very real sense Perhaps that's the objective, is to create what's called a, a world that is mitukan b'malchut shaddai, or corrected as a kingdom of God. The idea there being, the more our interactions, the more everything that we do in this world is dictated and governed by God's commandments, then the more this world exists in a perfect image of for a world as god laid out and maybe that's the goal now why exactly god created the world and for what purpose we're going to get into in future podcasts but i'll explain this thought as follows imagine your profession is you're a mover that requires a lot of moving boxes packing and unpacking going upstairs and downstairs with tremendous burdens loading things into trucks out of trucks it's a lot of heavy lifting One question you can ask is, what is this doing to you? Now, I think it's having a tremendous effect on your body in the sense that your muscles are probably growing, you're becoming stronger, your leg muscles, your arm muscles. Maybe it has some negative effects as well. If you're not lifting properly, it could negatively impact your back or strain other muscles in your body. That is what it's doing. It's certainly 100% what it's doing. It is a direct result of your actions, and yet... You wouldn't say that's why you're doing it. You wouldn't say you lift boxes to build your muscles. You lift boxes because you're a mover. Your job is to move whoever is hiring you from point A to point B. The natural product of the actions involved in that process is going to impact your body in a number of ways, whether positively or negatively But that impact is not why you're doing them. It is just an objective and absolute and a direct product of what you're doing, not why you're doing it. So what was pointed out to me after I made last week's podcast was that ultimately the Maharal brings it home to we're not doing this for us. We're doing it for the world. Objectively, this is what's happening to us. This is what we're benefiting from. This is what will be accomplished through the performance of the mitzvot. They do create similarity between us and God. They are kind of the, the practical manifestations of God's values in active form. But that's not why we're doing them. We do them to impact the world around us. We do them to influence the world around us being one where God exists in a very real sense in all of our actions and all our, our interactions with the people And the environment that we live in. Now I want to move on to the Ramchal's perspective. See, the Ramchal starts by saying as follows. We are basically a relationship made of two parts. The relationship is between the body and the soul. And they kind of exist in a sort of symbiotic relationship. Where really both need the other to perform its basic functions. However... Since we are in the physical world, the physical aspect of this relationship is naturally dominant. Our physicality dictates our behavior. It dictates our actions, our pursuits. And the body or the physical really subjects the soul into doing whatever it is that the body or the physical sees fit or desires to do. Now, the soul, while inherently, intrinsically, may be pure and exultant and otherworldly, spiritual, whatever you want to say, that may be the case in an ideal sense. But once they're bound together in this sort of relationship, and the body is dominant, and the body pursues whatever it is that it's pursuing, its physical Unholy, ungodly, inappropriate pursuits, whatever they may be, by extension, the soul is getting dragged through the mud. And it's being darkened. It's being blackened. It's obscuring its sense of clarity, spiritual clarity, moral clarity. It is blemished essentially by its bonding with this physical form that's pursuing improper endeavors and dragging the soul through the mud all the while. But the soul is unable to subject the body to a more holy pursuit because it's weaker by nature in this world. In which case, the role or the responsibility that is incumbent upon us is to strengthen the soul. If you strengthen the soul, it can subject the body to its will and connect back to God. But how exactly do you go about strengthening the soul in this world? It's, it's not such a simple process. Everything about us, I mean everything about our physical existence is geared towards wanting what is spiritually bad for us. as far as as the strictly physical realm is concerned, we want the things that we shouldn't have. It's our natural tendency. It'll always be our most overwhelming tendency. How do you strengthen the soul in the physical world to be dominant over its physical desires? Explains the, the Ramchal, this is what mitzvot do. In a very real sense, you have positive and negative commandments, actions you must perform and actions that you must abstain from. And the goal in the actions that you must perform is to complete some sort of spiritual deficiency that was created when the soul was bound to a physical form with improper pursuits. The positive commandments complete the deficiencies That were affected upon the soul. The negative commandments, the things that we must abstain from, remove some sort of blemish. Some sort of spiritual blemish that we have developed through the bonding of our spiritual and our physical. And through completing the deficiencies and and removing, cleaning the blemishes, we are able to strengthen our soul. In fact, we are able to strengthen our soul so much that potentially we could subject the physical to the spiritual. We could subject our body to the soul's desire. Now, there's a Gemara, I believe it comes up in Baba that brings the following metaphor. Essentially, you have a farmer. Now, he's going out of town, and he asks to men to guard his field one of them is paraplegic and the other one is blind so why he chooses these two people it may be an ill-advised choice but nonetheless these are his two guards they're supposed to watch over his field but when looters come and absolutely ruin the field they do nothing the farmer comes back and sees the state that his field is in and gets very upset with his two guards and he says what did you do what did you let happen here And the blind man speaks first and he says, I don't know what what happened. I'm blind. I couldn't see anything. And then the paraplegic says, well, you know what? I, I saw everything happen, but there's just one problem. And that is, well, I can't actually stop anyone from doing anything because I can't walk. The farmer does not take this as a legitimate excuse because he said, the reason why I put the two of you in charge is because... The strengths that each of you have make up for the deficiencies of the other. And had you worked together, you could have stopped them. And that's the nature of the relationship between the body and the soul in this world. The soul needs the body. It can't perform anything. The soul cannot daven. The soul can't pray. It can't perform mitzvot. A soul can't shake a lulav. A soul can't blow a shofar. It can't do any of the commandments, nor can it refrain from doing commandments. It's simply not relevant to, that, to, to, to the spiritual existence. The body can do all those things, but it's blind. It is blind to the spiritual benefits and the truth that is inherent within these spiritual endeavors. It wants only physical endeavors. That's what it chases. That's what it pursues. But the soul can see properly. It simply can't act. And our mission in this world is to use the mitzvot as a way of strengthening the soul. If you strengthen the soul, you can subject the body to the soul's desires. The soul which sees clearly then can use the body. The body then exists when subjected to the soul. When the physical is subjected to the spiritual existence, the body exists as a shell to carry out the proper pursuits of the soul. And more than that, the Ramchal brings us back to the world around us, similar to the way the Maharal does, in which he says everything in the spiritual, everything in the, sorry in the physical world can be used in some sense, whether actively or passively, to serve God. And the the physical world around us around us exists just in in potential for good until we use those things to serve God with it. So essentially what happens when you strengthen the spirit, when you strengthen the soul is it is able to subject the body to its will. And the body becomes a shell for the soul's service of God. And then the world around us becomes the mechanisms, the tools that the body uses To serve God and that therefore sanctifies the world around us as things that are divinely significant and being used for the true service of God. That is accomplished through mitzvot because by nature the soul is weak or rather weaker than the body which exists in its own element exists in the physical world where it just by its nature has dominance over the spiritual existence the mitzvot are divinely organized to strengthen the soul to diminish the blemishes to perfect the deficiencies and give the soul dominance over the body so that the soul can use the body's capability of interacting with the physical world to serve God and attach itself bond again with with God, with its source. That's the Ramchal's general perspective. Now, that may not be such an easy idea to conceptualize, and if you manage to conceptualize it, it may still be difficult to work into our everyday lives. What does this mean for us? How does this benefit us? What exactly are we supposed to take from these ideas, from the Maharal, from the Ramchal, about shaping our existence how is that supposed to inspire me to deepen my my commitment or my appreciation for religious practice so i have a metaphor that i i I like to go back to i like to use frequently i find that it's timely and it's relevant and it is easily understood and for myself it really does enhance my perspective day in and day out of the significance of religious practice the metaphor is as follows, it's the football metaphor, American football for our purposes, although I assume it could be applied to relatively any sport. Imagine you have a man, and he is in love, obsessed with football. It's, perhaps sadly so, it's his life. It's, 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 it's everything that he cares about, he waits till every single game comes on, he waits till Sunday all week, till Monday night football. He loves it. Now, years pass by and the man has two sons. He wants nothing more than to sit back on a Sunday with both of his sons and enjoy the game. Nothing would give him more pleasure in the world. There is just one small issue. His sons don't like the game. They find it boring or monotonous. They don't really understand what's going on. It seems like a lot of back and forth and they're not exactly about to spend 3 hours of their only day off school to watch a game on TV with their father. The father comes up with a solution. He says, he sits them down one day and he says, "Boys, I have the following proposition for you. I would like nothing more than to sit and watch football for 3 hours with each of you on Sunday." 12 to 3, 1 to 4, whatever your time zone is. That's all I want to do. I realize that you do not enjoy this game. I enjoy the game tremendously. And so I'm willing to give you some massive, massive reward at the end of the year. All you have to do is three hours on Sunday, one game, sit and watch the game with me. And I promise I'll make it worth your while. I promise if you do this with me, if you just try to enjoy it, I promise I'll make it worth your while. At the end of the year, I'll get you a gift like you've never seen before. That excites the sons, excites the brothers, and they accept the deal. So comes the first Sunday of the season, and the brothers take a bit of different approaches. One comes in and he says, all right, three hours to go how bad can it be he's watching and he's getting bored and he's getting more bored and it's torture and he doesn't know what's going on and he's just watching big people move around back and forth knocking each other over not enjoying his time but he forces himself three hours pass by very slowly and finally game's over he doesn't have to think about it until next week when he dreads Sunday at 12 o'clock Next game comes on, it's just getting a little bit too difficult, he's just getting a little bit antsy, he's bored, he starts playing on his phone, but hey, he's sitting there, right? I mean, that was the deal, he has to sit and watch the game with his father, he is sitting there while his father's watching the game, and he's kind of watching, he's kind of on his phone, but hey, it should count. Week three, he just can't take it anymore. He's bored out of his mind. He's on his phone. He's messaging his friends. He's checking Facebook. He's doing what he's doing, reading the news. He gets up, goes to the bathroom, comes back down. But, you know, you're allowed to go to the bathroom. He, he saw his father go to the bathroom once in the middle of the game, so he's going to go to the bathroom, although he stays there for 15 minutes, and then he comes back. He goes to the bathroom a second time during the game just because he's absolutely bored. But that's fine. You know, going to the bathroom is allowed. It doesn't cancel the deal. He's still doing what he has to do, and the third week passes. That's kind of how the season proceeds He's bored out of his mind. He's finding anything he can do to occupy his time while he is still technically fulfilling what his father asked for him. So at the end of the year, he can get the reward. And the second brother takes a little bit of a different approach. He decides, oh, I'm going to ask some questions. So kickoff happens. Great return. Excellent return on the kickoff. And he said, wow, that's that was very impressive. He managed to avoid three different people trying to tackle him. Who is that guy, he asks. His father explains, oh, this is such and such a player. He's very, very good. He's one of the best kickoff returners in the league. He says, oh, wow, that's amazing. I can't wait till the next kickoff. And then I can see, well, how well he does then. Comes the next kickoff, and not so good. The following one does amazing. Again, son's starting to get very excited. He writes his name down. He looks him up. More plays are happening. A penalty, a yellow flag goes in the middle of the field. He asks, oh, well, that's a penalty. When do you get a penalty? What happens if you have a penalty? Different plays are happening. Amazing catches, touchdowns. He's following the statistics. He's asking the questions. He's getting very excited when anything happens. As the weeks go by and he keeps looking up these players and looking up their statistics, he finds himself getting really into it. He keeps asking questions if he doesn't understand something. He looks up the players that he wants to watch. And then he finds out, well, hey, actually, there are two players I want to watch. And one of them's on at 12 and one of them's on at three. What's the solution? Instead of just watching three hours of football on a Sunday, he watches six hours of football on a Sunday. Now he's watching the early game and he's watching the late game, but he's loving it. He's following his favorite players. He's checking their stats. He's having the time of his life. Two, a- two a- football games on a Sunday becomes three football games on a Sunday Sunday. That turns into Monday night football, Thursday night football, Saturday night football. He arranges pickup games with his friends. It's his life. He loves it. He's hooked. He waits for Sunday all week long. That's how the season proceeds. By the end of it, he just cannot wait for next football season. And the father sits the two of the sons down, and he says, Well, I promised you something excellent. I promised you something exceptional. And hey, you both did what I asked. You were there every Sunday for three hours. So the first son says, you know what, dad, I really appreciate it. But this honestly was the best year of my life. I had so much fun. I love football so much. I cannot wait till the next season to start. You can keep your present because, well, this was amazing. This was the best year of my life. The second son sits there thinking, this better be worth it because that was torture I wasted countless amounts of, or countless hours watching a game that I did not care about, that I do not enjoy. I really hope I never have to do this again. Just tell me what my prize is, and I want to move on with my life and forget about the last 17 Sundays. So the father says, Okay, I promise something, I promise to make it worth your while. So here it goes. In exchange, For you sitting with me for three hours every single Sunday, I have a gift for you, a surprise like you've never had in your life. The three of us are going to the Super Bowl. The first son is ecstatic. He jumps up overjoyed. He can't believe it. He's telling all of his friends, you wouldn't believe it. Going to the final game, it's going to be amazing. The championship, he's been looking forward to this. An experience like no other. He is on cloud nine. Meanwhile, the second son has his... Face in his hands, steaming, fuming. Not only did he waste three hours every Sunday for the last four plus months, but he's not even going to enjoy the prize. In my mind, that is the perfect metaphor for what exactly we're doing here. For somehow, and I don't know how, but somehow, the vision of heaven, so to speak, or the vision of the reward at the end of our lives. Has been, so, has been so transformed, maybe by Hollywood, maybe by, by other religions with more simplistic views on, on afterlife. But the notion that in the physical world, we have to pursue spiritual pursuits because it's proper and correct. And yet in the spiritual world where you don't have a body, the pleasures are going to be physically oriented is is just absurd. It It doesn't make any sense. The idea that there is going to be any sort of physical enjoyment in the next world is absolute nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. You don't even have a body. If in the physical world where you have a body to enjoy these things, you're not supposed to or you're supposed to refrain to a certain degree, it makes no sense that in the spiritual world when you leave your body behind, It's going to be any degree of physical pleasure. It's all spiritual enjoyment. Your responsibility in this world is to use the football season to make sure that you enjoy the Super Bowl. And if you do that, not only is it the greatest reward of all, but you'll actually find that the season was far more enjoyable as well. That's what it means to... Follow the mitzvot, to serve God properly as opposed to either not at all or else improperly trying to just get past it without thinking about it, doing things technically with no meaning or no depth, watching things on your phone while you're sitting next to your dad watching football. Yeah, you're there, but you're not really there. You're not into it. You're not trying. You're not attempting to develop any sort of connection or passion for what you're doing. You know, if, if you're supposed to be praying and you treat it as just a task that you need to accomplish, check off a list of a long checklist of religious responsibilities, so you zoom through the words, but hey, you were there. You said it. You did what you needed to do. That doesn't help. That doesn't actually shape you. You may have been watching the game. But if you were actually watching the game, then you'd start to enjoy it. But if you're doing something else and you're distracting yourself and you're not asking questions and you're not pursuing further, at the end of the day, you may have been there. But this notion that we can trick God into thinking that we did what we were supposed to do by checking a long list of things in our religious checklist it's absurd. You can't fool God. You can't outsmart him. The fact that his system would exist in a way that you could take advantage of it or or capitalize on loopholes to get around doing anything of real spiritual value, it doesn't make any sense. How did we get to this point that we think that we can do things with no intention, no meaning, no depth behind them, no positive desire to come close to god through them without letting them in without letting them impact us and believe at the end of the day that we're doing something objectively good in a religious realm you're not you're doing nothing if you're not letting it in and it's not influencing you you're doing nothing at the end of the day you're not coming there with a completed checklist and saying may i enter heaven please it's a very childish perception of of what the next world is i heard a few beautiful metaphors about the next world essentially if you could imagine a long set table with your closest friends and all of your favorite foods hot and ready to eat anything you could possibly want there's just one problem you can't bend your elbows it's a strange problem but that's the problem you can't bend your elbows so You're sitting and you're staring at your favorite food. You are starving. Your mouth is watering. Everything you want is right in front of you, but you can't eat any of it. Now, if you had done what you were supposed to do in this world and you had focused upon kindness and generosity, if you had made your life about helping other people, then you would understand that you're supposed to serve your friend and your friend is supposed to serve you. Because if you can't bend your elbows, you can't put it into your own mouth, but you can put it into your friends. But someone who didn't make his life about kindness is not going to assume that. If he thinks only of himself, all he'll realize is that, well, I'm not able to eat right now. He won't think to help his friend, his friend won't think to help him. And there is no heaven and hell. It's one room with a set table. And if you did what you were supposed to do in this world, then it's heaven. And if you didn't, then it's hell. And that's true for generosity and kindness, and it's true for every level of religious observance. The next world is an experience. It's either a good one or a bad one, and that has a lot to do with what you do in this world. In fact, it has everything to do with what you do in this world, and a checklist is going to make no difference if you're not actually changing as a person and coming closer to God, being a better person, being a more godly individual. If you're not actually changing, you're just checking things off a list meaninglessly, thoughtlessly, that isn't actually going to help you. My grandfather used to say that heaven or the next world is a lot like an opera. If you like the opera, well, then it's an amazing experience that you're paying hundreds just to see. And if you don't like the opera, well, then it's the longest three hours of your life. Well, it's an eternal opera. And that can be absolutely torturous or it can be amazing. Your job in this world is to do whatever it takes to start liking the opera. But what else reigns true about this or rings true about this metaphor is that investing time pays dividends. If you don't actually invest the time and effort, I mean, listen, this is a scary thought. At the end of the day, if you don't fit, you don't fit. If you don't enjoy it, That's quite unfortunate. That's a scary thought, but it's not as scary when you realize that if you invest real time and effort, it's natural to start enjoying these things. It's our nature to attach ourselves to the things that we inquire about, that we pursue, we ask the right questions. There is an aspect of Torah, of religion, that every person has the capacity to connect to. But you actually have to put an effort. And if you don't put an effort, then this world is going to be torturous every time you have to do something that is religiously oriented. And the next world, which is just entirely based on your spiritual success in this world, is going to be a horrible experience. It's dependent upon how we act in this world and whether or not we manage to shape ourselves properly To be able to enjoy what's waiting for us in the next world. And if you do that, and if you do put in that effort, then even this world, even this world becomes exceptional. So that's just a little bit about my general perspective on how to really take the Maharal's perspective and and make it true in kind of a real sense. Integrate it into my life and my daily observance of the mitzvot, which is to say as follows. You have a responsibility to shape yourself in the image of God. Performing the mitzvot, learning his Torah, these are things that help that process. At the end of the day, if you did them properly and you put all of yourself into them and you invested properly in them, you're going to be successful, at least moderately so, you'll be successful and the existence that you would have created for yourself is going to be one that is compatible with God. One that is harmonious, one that knows how to benefit and enjoy the spiritual existence waiting for it. And the thought that, that you can either get by doing things thoughtlessly or meaninglessly without really looking into what you're doing and developing a passion toward them by checking them off a list or otherwise, the thought that somehow the world to come is going to be some sort of physical enjoyment that you're going to, to get, it's simply not the case. You know, I ask myself about, you know, what about people who, who, aren't, who aren't privy to all of this information? You know, what, what will happen to them? And I think, that, I think that it's not exactly a zero-sum game. Meaning if you're just a decent, kind-hearted, good individual, a good person, then to the extent to which that that the, the next world is, a, or to the extent to which you are supposed to be a good person in this world, then you will enjoy in the next world. That's certainly an aspect of it. Being a good person, a generous, a kind person is certainly an aspect of it. So even if you don't have the Torah and you're a good person, even if you don't learn the mitzvot, but you're doing righteous acts of kindness in this world you will enjoy it partially but the part of it that was shaped by kindness maybe not necessarily the part of it that was shaped by shabbat by keeping shabbos by eating kosher that's certainly going to influence the soul in another way and in that way you might be deficient you may lack that aspect of of compatible existence however you're supposed to enjoy the next world because of how shabbos shaped your soul so you may lack that but you're not going to be lacking everything and similarly i wonder if you have the torah you have the mitzvot you follow the commandments but you're a bad person you're not a nice person you're not a a particularly kind individual or, or a caring one so i'm not exactly sure on the one hand It seems clear to me that at least the aspect of righteousness and kindness and generosity, which was supposed to impact your soul, you're lacking that for sure. Maybe you'll have compatibility to the degree that Shabbos shapes your soul. Kashrut shapes your soul. Maybe in that aspect you'll be compatible, but not entirely compatible. You're not going to enjoy it as much as you otherwise could have. But I'm not even sure that's the case. Cuz I would like to suggest an interesting perspective on the idea of Derech Eretz Kadmalatora. Derech Eretz Kadmalatora in loose translation is just kind of being a basically good individual who functions properly in, in, in with the people around him is a precursor to a certain degree, to Torah. And you can take that in a lot of different directions. It just means it's the first thing to focus on. Maybe it means it takes priority in a practical situation. Whatever it means, I I would like to offer my own suggestion on it, which is maybe derech Eretz, and just being first and foremost a good person, is not only a practical responsibility in this world, but it is a very Real necessity as far as shaping your soul goes. Meaning, maybe keeping Shabbat is the is is the cherry on the frosting. Maybe following the mitzvot and learning Torah influence and shape your soul beyond what anything else could. But it's not even ready to be formed before the Derecher. It's just not even, it's not even malleable. It's just rock hard, not ready to be moved by anything. And you can put all the Torah into it that you want. And you can put all the commandments into it that you want. And you can be strict in every aspect of halakha, every aspect of, of, of the legal code that you want. But maybe your, your, your soul is simply not ready to be formed by anything until it's formed by Derech Heretz. Until it's formed by just being a good person. Maybe that's what it means that Derech Heretz is Kadma Torah. You need to focus on this first Otherwise, nothing else is going to have an impact on you. Everything else, it's you're sending it at a rock. You're unable to shape it. You can do everything in the world, but you're not going to succeed in influencing your spiritual being even one degree. The Derech Eretz is first. It makes the soul malleable, able to be adapted by the Torah, by the commandments in order to make them similar to God. And for those who embody and embrace Derech Eretz and live their life in a generous fashion so at least that had moderate impact. They created a soul that could be formed in the shape of God even if they left it underdeveloped by not pursuing the extent of all the commandments that we have and not following the Torah to the fullest extent of their capabilities. Maybe so, but they have something. They have a basis. Of course they'll lack a, a, a certain degree of enjoyment from their failure to follow all of the commandments but, it, but it'll be something whereas those who fail to just be on the most basic level a good person I'm not sure that their soul is ready to be formed in the image of God they're missing certain pre- precursors in order to shape themselves like God at all that's how I understand, well, it's, it's not exactly my understanding, but it's more a thought inspired by the Maharal and the Ramchal. And our responsibility in this world is to shape ourselves, be the type of people who are going to enjoy the spiritual existence waiting for us. We do that by focusing on developing our spiritual qualities, emulating God in this world, perhaps first and foremost, to create a world that recognizes God. But as a secondary goal, we're able to shape ourselves in the image of God and enjoy properly the world to come.